We must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, F. Scott Feel, and I'm joined by my other co-hosts, Stephanie Wyrock and Brandon Pone. Today, we are privileged to speak with Dr. Barbara Sanders, who is the current president of the American Council of Academic Physical Therapy, a.k.a. ACAPT or ACAPT. Along with being the professor and chair, Department of Physical Therapy at Texas State University and associate dean, uh, the College of Health Professions at Texas State University, she was also named as a Catherine Worthington Fellow of the APTA in 2010. Now, Barbara, we are just so excited to have you and thank you so much for coming on tonight. But would you mind telling our audience a little bit about who you are and what you're doing currently? Well, as you said, I'm the chair of the Department of Physical Therapy at Texas State. I've been here um, over 30 years. Um, It's hard to think that that time has gone by so fast. Um, I um, just went to emeritus status with my sports certification. I was one of the first non-athletic trainers certified as a sports physical therapist and maintained some practice until about five years ago. And then uh, with all the administration, I was unable to do that. I'm a proud graduate of the um, University of Kentucky, and so I give back to um, to that institution. I serve on their University of Kentucky Alumni Association Board of Directors as well. So, um, proud wife, and and I have a beautiful daughter who's a clinical dietitian, and so I'm a happy person. Well, it sounds like you have. Uh, come very, very far in your career. Can you tell us a little bit about, tell our audience a little bit about your academic journey and how it led you where you are today, sitting as, you know, one of the first sports physical therapists that was certified by the APTA, associate dean of a school. Tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got there. Well, I, as I said, I went to the University of Kentucky. We had a very small class. There were 14, 15 of us, and we had four faculty members. Um, they were great faculty. The person that was running the clinical ed at the time was um, not very well organized. And I always said that I could do a better job. Um, I wanted to do a better job in clinical education because I just felt like that haphazardly placing us out and letting us go for six or eight weeks and then collecting us back wasn't probably the best strategy. So um, I had a chance to work in in Lexington and um, I'd been out about two years and I got a call and they said, hey, Barb, we've got a federal grant. We're going to lose money. Would you like to get your master's in education Um, for nothing? 
So I jumped on the bandwagon and let, let uh, the federal government pay for my master's in education. And I finished and I wanted to teach at Kentucky. And at the time, um, Dr. McDougall would not hire his own graduates. He wanted people from outside the institution. So he kicked me out of the nest. I ended up in Stephanie in Minnesota, um, working in St. Cloud in, in a hospital after I said I'd never go back to working in a hospital again. But I went to a continuing ed course at University of Wisconsin La Crosse. And on that faculty were two people that had um, graduated from Kentucky a couple years ahead of me and were good friends. And they were looking for a director of clinical education. So I, um, about six months later, I took that job and moved to La Crosse, Wisconsin. I worked with uh, Jim Gould, George Davies, and Pat Wilder for about five years there. Loved, loved teaching, loved directing clinical education. Hopefully, I did a much better job there. Got involved with a section on education. Met lots of my really good colleagues at that time. Um, and that kind of told the story. As we left Wisconsin, my husband um, went to work on his doctoral degree at Tennessee, and I knew I'd never have a degree from the University of Tennessee, but I did start on my degree there in higher ed. Uh, we were there about three years. I took a few courses, and when we came to um, Austin, Texas, I had a chance to transfer those courses to the other UT, finish a PhD in higher education, start teaching part-time, and that's how I ended up where I am. Nice. I think there's a lot of really important pearls. I think that was really unique. And what I really loved is when we kind of inspired you initially to kind of pursue that when you first saw something that you didn't like, and you're like, well, gosh, darn it, I'm going to go see if I can do that a little bit better. And then sure enough, with time and that, that kind of turned out to happen that way. So I think that that's really good to hear. And, you know, and Barbara, of course, today, we're kind of bringing you on specifically more to talk about kind of the ACAP role. And, you know, for our audience, perhaps, who's not aware or who have never heard of it, do you think you could tell us a little bit about what specifically ACAPT does and kind of how and why it was formed? Okay. Well, ACAPT is um, short for American Council of Academic Physical Therapy. We are a very unique organization within the American Physical Therapy Association because we are, our membership is made up of institutional members. There's a long history that goes with leadership in, in higher education and physical therapy, and it started with um, a group of people outside of APTA. They called themselves the school, the school Directors Council. That was probably in the 60s, 50s, and 60s. There were probably 15 or 20 of those folks. And as the um, organization APTA grew and as we developed sections and the section on education got stronger, they decided to... Uh, disband as a council of program directors and become part of the section on education. And they formed the Academic Administrator Special Interest Group. That's the predecessors of that group. Well, that group uh, existed for, oh, I don't know, 30, 40 years. And there was a certain level of frustration because, as we know, APTA members are individual members, uh, section memberships volunteer voluntary. Um, the people that would show up at ASIC, ASIC meetings could represent an institution. They could represent themselves. We didn't have any organization that really collectively spoke for academic programs. And there are many times where there were things out that needed to have an opinion, um, expert input, and, and it just didn't exist. So in the late, um, gosh, let's see, would have been in, in early 2000, somewhere 2005, during our, um, 
October, what's now called educational leadership meetings, ASIG always had a fall meeting of just academic administrators. We started talking about what we really needed was something that would unify the voice of education. So that's the early development of, um, of ACAP. So that we started to formalize in the in 2007, 8, 9. Uh, we had exploratory committees talking with APTA, and that's really kind of the genesis for ACAPT. The bylaws were passed in the um, 2013 House of Delegates that gave the option for institutional membership, and that's where we were created as the Academic Council. Awesome. Well, Barbara, can you tell us a little bit about how ACAPT works to influence DPT education across the U.S.? Well, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty new. I mean, we're, we've got a, a six, seven year history here. So we're working real hard to, as any new organization does, um, to develop how we represent programs. We initially planned that we might have 30, 40 percent membership. We were absolutely amazed when uh, within the first year or two, we have well over 75% of the eligible programs as members. We now represent 95% of all eligible academic physical therapy programs in the country. So what we're trying, what we, um, the way we do that is each, each institution has a representative and they come to our business meeting to vote. Um, our membership votes on important issues, but in the interim, we have a, a nine member uh, board of directors and we have worked real hard to develop a strategic plan to really look at what are the high priority items um, that ACAP needs, needs to be working on. And certainly that's all focused towards excellence in entry level education right now and excellence in physical therapy education um, with trying to identify what, are, what is excellence, um, how can we get the, bring the support to provide excellence a number of different initiatives. So we have a strategic plan. Um, as we developed our bylaws, we were trying to look at how could we engage as many people as possible because ACAP is all of the educational programs. It's not just the program directors or the, or the institutional rep. All the faculty, all the clinical education faculty are eligible to be member or to participate in ACAP. So that's a that's a start, and that's to to really spread the communication, share the strategic plan, get input from as many people as we can um, about things that are important to education. So one of the one of the early things we did, we were active with the traffic rules for uh, PT casts. That that actually started before we um, actually were a formal organization, and we continued to work on that. Um, we have been involved in discussions about with APTA about um, educational issues. We were doing that as we were developing ACAPT. So there's a, a lot of ways that we're, we're working on trying to um, extend that voice. So Barb, as an organization like ACAPT and representing institutions, one of the things that I have seen or have heard throughout the APTA is that when you're dealing with institutions, you're always dealing with red tape, especially the larger the institution gets, the more red tape you have to go through. What type of barriers uh, does ACAPT have to go through in order to get things done that, that you guys prioritize that maybe most clinicians and educators don't really know about? 
Well, I think the biggest barrier is is to continue to improve communication and decision making. And certainly we see it with APTA if we if we give all of the power in our decision making to the House of Delegates, then that's that's a one time a year. So the timeliness of that. So we're we're working on how do we impact communication? How do we make decisions? Um, fairly quickly because as a new organization and changes constantly going on in higher ed, we're trying to figure out how do we steer the ship quickly. So we've done that through a variety of ways with the development of consortia, with the development of partnerships, with the, um, the consortia that we have developed. So the barriers that we have are not the same kinds of red tape barriers that you have in major organizations. Our barrier is that number one, a lot of people still don't know who we are and what we do. And that's within our institutions as well as outside. So if we think about some of our faculty, if, if we don't have program directors that are very active and very vocal, sometimes the faculty don't understand what we do and certainly their clinical partners don't. So I'd say the biggest barrier that we have right now is just to continue um, communication and helping people understand who we are and what we do. So as far as those decisions that you guys talk about, are those decisions that if you, if you look at individual versus society, are those decisions that you guys help institutions make about DPT education at, you know, the institutional level versus like serving the individual students? Would you be able to expand on that? Well, you know, one of the things that, that we were asked to work on a couple of years ago was when the whole discussion on student debt load came up. And so that was what we wanted to have a position from, from ACAP. How could we have an impact on student debt load? How could we help collect information to inform decision-making? And that was when uh, we started surveying the, the physical therapy programs about what, what is the debt load of their students? Let's get some data to see what the data-driven decisions are. Um, we have a project that is uh, fondly or not fondly called the benchmark data and that's where we're asking for certain asking certain engagement questions of our member programs so we can start helping them with some of their assessment and outcome measures um, we've had discussions about capti activities and how can we as a group collectively have a voice to uh, communicate with capti one of the things that started very early on was um, the proliferation of physical therapy programs the, the growth of new programs, the growth of existing programs, and how could we impact that sharing our concerns about the uh, level of resources or the lack of resources. So we've worked real closely with CAPTI and um, you know, four or five years ago, I think we saw some changes in the expectations for developing programs. Um, we've seen the standards reviewed and, and, and changes in standards for all of the programs. So those are the kinds of things that we're looking at that are institutional and not individual. Gotcha. And, and I think that's really good to kind of hear some of those decisions kind of from involving um, CAPTI, but also kind of bringing up kind of the stance on student loan debt is I think those are two some big pressing issues. And, you know, one thing that I'm curious just kind of about, because I think those are big topics that need to be addressed. And that's really good that they're looking into that. Um, something that I'm just curious about here, Barb, um, is that has ACAP done anything specifically in regards to kind of getting a stance on kind of the board exam and just overall about curriculum in general around the board exam? Or has that come up at all? Or 
Well, we have a we have a liaison to the Federation. And so we have an ongoing dialogue about that. Uh, the biggest thing that has come up about the exam is the fixed date testing and the limited number of testing dates and sites. That's, that's probably been the biggest issue that the institutions have brought to us. Um, certainly, we um, are continuing to look at the blueprints of the exams and how they do the practice analysis and how they format the exams. That hasn't hit the highest level of priority yet, though. Okay. All right. And it definitely seems like when I've done kind of my research regarding ACAP, and I know we've talked a little bit about, you've mentioned some of the projects in that as well. Um, but with all the task forces and committees that ACAP has created, do you think you could give us kind of just a brief overview about the task forces of ACAP and kind of what the results of the task forces have led to that perhaps you haven't alluded to already? Sure. Um, I think that probably, well, we have eight consortia. Those are all special interest groups. One of those consortia, well, actually two of those consortia have been pretty active. Um, the first one is the, um, the research intensive programs. They are working on a survey now to look at how do we increase uh, research faculty? How do we look at, at getting people into PhD programs? Also with our clinical reasoning curriculum group, um, and our um, and our RIPT group, we've talked about the lack of educational research. So through um, through those discussions, we are now working as a partner with ELP, which we haven't even talked about, which is the Educational Leadership Partnership. The the three um, groups that are in education: APTA, ACAPT, and the Section on Ed. We've already provided several workshops on education research. Um, certification that has come through the AAMC, the, the medical school organization, um, to help create educational researchers. That, that's been one of the most active and most recent activities that we had. I think you all talked to Rick Siegel um, on one of your recent podcasts, and uh, that's certainly one of the things that, or maybe, Steph, you talked to him on Facebook. You did a Facebook Live with him. And um, Rick Siegel has been one of the driving forces behind that because he's one of our board members. Yeah, Barbara, I got to say, I'm excited to have you on tonight because this is something that I think, you know, you guys are almost seeming like a sounding board at this point. And I'm glad that we're bringing awareness to our audience about ACAPT because I think this is a great resource that, uh, you know, the, the field of physical therapy is only going to benefit from. So would you mind telling our, our audience a little bit about how they can get involved as a member of ACAPT? Well, our members are institutional members. So, um, you know, you have to be an accredited PT program. Even the developing programs cannot be members yet. We're, we're providing programming for them. We're providing mentoring, access to things, but they aren't official members. So if you are an educator at a member program, if you are a, and an educator very broadly, we, we welcome clinical educators, uh, guest speakers, adjunct faculty, full-time faculty. There's an opportunity for, for people to attend our ELC meetings, uh, to get on our website, to use our resources, um, to um, find things that, that they're interested in doing. Um, we also work closely with the education section, trying to help them drive some of their programming so that we're meeting the needs of everybody in education. Uh, we've been very active in the two task forces that came out of the house on best practices in physical therapy education and then best practices in clinical education as well. 
So Barb, you've talked a lot about some of the things that you want that ACAP um, has accomplished in the past or, or, you know, things that they're currently working on. What type of future directives is ACAP planning on working on in the future? Well, we have, um, as part of our strategic plan, is, is to continue the communication efforts that we have to work closely with our liaison partnerships. We're active in the, um, the, the National Organization for Interprofessional Education. We have representatives there. Um, we are, as I said, we have liaisons to the Federation. Um, we we want to be recognized as a group that speaks for education. So communication is a huge effort for us, both internally and externally. We have a new leadership initiative so that we can help develop leaders in education at, at both the academic program director level, at the faculty level, at the clinical education level, and, and even into the student level. So leadership development is one of our newest initiatives. Uh, we are continuing our efforts from the Clinical Education Summit that we had, and that's tying in with the ClinEd Task Force. So we have uh, active panels developing um, strategies on, on all of those recommendations. The, um, the benchmark for excellence is, is the continuing effort to look at um, engagement survey, trying to collaborate with CAPTI on access to information. How can we make um, how can we integrate with CAPTI so that we're not that we're working smarter and not harder with multiple surveys and those kinds of things? And then this whole idea of the educational research, looking at the scholarship of teaching and learning and looking at pedagogy. Um, those are probably the, the five major um, emphases that we have through our strategic plan. And then it's the ongoing response to federal legislation response to uh, financial aid, response to external forces. Sure. No, and I think that's really good to kind of hear those the plans there. And I think that's going to be some things definitely that we plan to look forward to. Um, one, I'm going to back up just a little bit in terms of how we were talking about kind of um, how can one get involved with ACAP. And as you mentioned before, particularly with those that are within um, working within an accredited program that can be guest lecturers, adjuncts, faculty, clinical. Um, I'm just kind of curious, does that, is there anything similar in that involves with PTA educators in any way, shape or form? Is that something that's totally separate? Uh, there is not for PTA educators, and we had lots of the conversations about that as ACAP was forming. Should we include um, PTAs? And we felt like the endeavor that we were taking on was so new and so large uh, that we didn't want to muddy the water about who we are and what we what we do. Um, we certainly don't don't want to exclude PTAs, but right now, because of the way our bylaws are written and because of the way a PTA's bylaws are written, we're only for physical therapy education. Our, our educational leadership programs, are, ELC is always open to PTA educators and the networking and the lessons learned. So um, there's no exclusive right to the communication that we do, but, but right now there's not a similar organization for PTAs. All right. Gotcha. And, you know, with this next question, I'm going to take a little bit of a different term, um, turn, excuse me, and kind of go a different route. And, you know, realize, of course, this is very individual specific, but, you know, what advice would you give to either an aspiring or novice educator to help them be the best educator or teacher that they can be? Well, there are two things that I would say is one, be sure that you have at least one really good mentor. 
you can have more than one, but you need at least one really good mentor, someone that you can um, consult with, that will be honest with you, that will work with you through your career development. The second thing I would, would say is to look at the wide variety of resources available that we have in education to help become a good educator, whether it's within APTA or outside um, ASAP. ASAP does programming. There's lots of programming out there that it's open to physical therapy educators. So I would I would say, you know, once you've done a self-assessment, look at the the areas that you feel like you need some work in and look at where the tools are and the resources. Yeah. So Barbara, kind of going off the tips and advice uh, aspect of things, what are some books that you've read lately um, that you feel are great resources for young professionals or clinicians looking to educate? I just, I'm almost finished with a book that I, it's easy read, but it has been really, really valuable. And it's called The Coaching Habit. It's by Michael Stanier, I think, S-T-A-N-I-E-R. And it's about communication and how do we simplify communication. It's an easy read. It's a really, really good book. That's probably one of the ones. And of course, I'm a a Covey 7 Habits facilitator, and I go back to my Covey 7 Habits all the time because I find that to be um, a really good collection of common sense. I'm liking those recommendations, Barb. I've added, uh, well, I've read the 7 Habits, but I'm going to add that other one to my very long list of books that our, that our guests have recommended to us. So I have a I have kind of a theoretical question for you, and I like these questions because I'm somebody that likes to think about really big ideas. So I know that CAPTI has specific requirements for uh, programs to facilitate passing of the NPTE, Um, but let's just pretend that there's no requirements for CAPTI and there's no requirements for you to pass your board exam. If you could create a DPT curriculum or a post-professional path and you have no limitation on this, um, what would your ideal DPT program look like? I would throw everything that we know out the window right now, and I would start with two major tracks. One would be movement, all about movement. What do we know need to know about movement to be the movement specialist? And the second track would be on leadership and communication. I think we could build a fantastic curriculum around those two things. If we look at the, you know, the anatomy, the, the kinesiology, the biomechanics, the pathomechanics in movement, um, and then throw in the age span, span life across a lifestyle span um, there, and, and then combine that with the leadership, the decision making, the critical thinking. I feel like leadership is something that have, has come up quite a bit on this podcast, and so I really appreciate you mentioning that, as well as communication, because, I mean, that's pretty much our job every day as physical therapists is to communicate with people. Absolutely. If we, if we can observe how they move and, and talk to them about that, that's, that's to me is the basic foundation of who we are and what we do. Yeah. And Barbara, just to kind of add to that, uh, you know, as we've heard over and over and over again, communication and leadership skills to be such an important aspect of physical therapy schools and even, you know, young clinicians, we're finding a lot of times that it's not necessarily the best students with the highest scores that have these leadership skills. And uh, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on some of these soft skills and some of the things that may be uh, like grit or emotional intelligence. Are you guys starting to look at any of that when it comes to uh, getting into DPT schools and programs? 
Absolutely. That's one of the programs that we did at, at the last ELC was and um, at combined sections meeting was on holistic admissions. And I think that's that's something you're going to see shifting in the future is this whole concept of, uh, of, of a holistic admissions. We've been doing that here at Texas State for the last five or 10 years. And um, I can't tell you how strong I, I believe that we need to look at things like grit scores and communication scores and emotional intelligence. Um, you, you don't have to be the 4.0 smartest PT out there. Uh, you need to be able to communicate with a wide range of, of people, especially in our uh, diverse and changing society today. No, I totally agree. Because especially, I mean, you can have all the book knowledge and all the smarts if you want, but if you can't communicate with people or get them to trust you, it, it's kind of all for nothing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We like to ask this question kind of to all our guests at the very end, because we're just so curious to kind of hear everyone's thoughts on this. And, and the question that we always ask is, if you could change one aspect of higher education, and, and whether, that be D, whether that be DPT or otherwise, what would you change and how would you go about changing it? Well, I think we are headed on the path of what I what I see being a really important change, and that is we really need to go back and focus on our strong partnership with clinical education. Um, we need instead of um, let's say me taking my forty students and sending them wherever they want to go all over the country, I need to develop um, eight or ten real strong clinical partners and uh, be sure that I have a foundation for, for providing good clinical education. And, and when I say developing those as partners, it's not just a contract. It's they understand our curriculum. They're part of our faculty. We're part of their practice. Um, we're, we're engaged together. And I, I see that perhaps is de developing now with the growth of programs and maybe through even ACAP and our in our NCCE is because they've, they've really worked on partnerships is maybe we look at some regional partnerships um, because we are in this together. It's not just academic education and then clinical education. Uh, we've got to look at the bridging that gap. And, and I think as we have discussions about, again, student debt load, cost of education, length of education, quality of education, I think we're getting there. It's, um, it's pretty slow. But, but I think down the road, we're, we're going to get there. We can't, we can't answer this question about best practice in, in clinical education without doing it in a partnership way. So if I had one thing to change, uh, I would do that. Now, um, with that comes, you know, maybe my thoughts on, on residencies and internships. And um, I haven't quite figured out where, where I think we're going to go with that. I, I'm very much a traditionalist. Um, and, and so that's going to stretch my creativity to think about the role of internships and then residencies. Um, I wish that the clinical ed model could be sustained by paid internships and by paid residencies. And I'm just not so sure right now the way that we are structured in higher education that that's going to be successful. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because before I kind of have always been kind of curious on this clinical education topic and kind of the post-professional path. And it was interesting when you said we need more partnerships with really like a full partnership between kind of the clinical side and the academic side, because that's exactly what um, I had Bob Rowe, John Childs and Gail Jensen on for kind of a little mini series on this very topic. And and Bob was such a strong advocate of trying to work for that. And clearly the, the amount that he's done with Brooks 
to be able to achieve that and make that happen, in my opinion, is very remarkable. And I also think that John, with him, what they've achieved through EIM and what they're helping do with models like South College and Baylor, um, to me, is really strikes as a really good start. And I know that they're going at it really well and they're getting a lot of good student feedback, but I know, I'm not sure what also barriers they're facing either. So I think those are definitely some interesting points for sure. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think that, that, um, you know, John's an out, John Childs is an outside the box thinker. And I think we, we have a lot of people across the country watching him with the EIM model, how South is doing and how Baylor's doing. And now I think they're getting ready to add Tufts to that list. Um, we have some really good models out there that perhaps don't always toot their horn well enough. If you if you look at the University of Pittsburgh, they have an incredibly good model, but but because it's so good and they're so comfortable with it, um, we don't always hear a lot about it other than, I mean, if you're regionally, you hear a lot about it. MGH has a good model. So I think what we want to do is we want to identify who has some of those really good models and and get those out there so we can start doing some educational research. What are the outcomes? What's the proof in the pudding there? So I think those are the challenges that we have. I think that's a really interesting perspective, Barb. And I would totally agree with what has been said as far as us needing to innovate with models and trying to figure out how we're going to solve some of these, these problems that are coming up in education. I wanted to finish with just saying thank you, Barb, for sharing your insight and sharing your wisdom with us. We've learned a lot from you. And, you know, there's probably people that are going to have questions for you and want to continue this conversation. So is there a place that people can find you online or on social media? Um, my email is bs04 at txstate.edu. Uh, that's probably where I find, find myself spending most of the time. Um, that's at Texas State's website, txstate.edu. Um, we also have an ACAPT website, and you can access us through that. Um, that's acapt.org. So um, I'm I'm a neophyte to Twitter, so I'm not I'm not going to add that one on there. I'm just going to continue my lurking role on Twitter for a while until I develop my confidence. So I'm going to go old school with email. How's that? Well, and I'll also throw in a pitch for ACAP does have a Twitter page. So if you guys are on Twitter, you can always follow ACAP. I don't know if they have a Facebook page, though, but I know they have a Twitter page. So make sure you follow ACAP on Twitter. You can just search ACAP and it should come up. Yep. And we can put all those links in the show notes for you guys, too. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Barbara. We appreciate your time. I've enjoyed it. Good luck to you all. Thanks for inviting me. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, as we greatly appreciate your support to help us advance healthcare education. We are very happy to announce that we have created a new tool to help develop clinicians into better experts. With that being said, we have created the HET Light Tool, which LIGHT stands for Learning Integrated Towards Expertise. And what we've done is we've taken our first year's worth of episodes with experts in the fields of healthcare and education, and we've taken one golden nugget or theory on expertise and presented it to you in a very easily consumable format so that people can take one lesson or nugget per week and map out and plan how to incorporate it into your clinical and educational practices. And by the end of the year, we think you'll be pleasantly surprised at how far you've progressed towards becoming an expert. To find out more, please check it out at pteducator.com slash H-E-T, which is also available in our show notes. Thank you again all for your continued support. 
thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.